Go with me to the Gospel of Mark. We are going to chapter 4. And we're going to take a look at what is known as the parable of the soils. It's a very familiar parable to many of us, I believe. But we're going to dig a little deep into the dirt, if you will. Go down into the soil and discover all that we can as to its meaning. And let me remind you of the story itself in the opening eight verses here. Let's go to verse 1. It says, Again he began to teach by the sea. A very large crowd gathered around him. So he got into a boat on the sea and sat down. And while the whole crowd was on the shore facing the sea, he taught them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, this occurred. Some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it sprang up right away since it didn't have deep soil. And when the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it didn't have a root, it withered. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it didn't produce a crop. Still, others fell on good ground and produced a crop that increased 30, 60, and 100 times what was sold. Now, I want you to get something. Everyone around this time understood this story. All of the disciples understood it. The people, the crowd, everyone understood it. Everyone was familiar with this. You see, this is Galilee. This is around the Sea of Galilee where there were fields as far as the eye could see. Everyone had experienced this kind of thing. as It was part of their daily routine all the years of their lives. And the story is simple enough. They all knew that not all seed was thrown was going to be productive. Now, I'm a very inexperienced amateur gardener, and I don't even attempt to know what I'm doing at all. But I do know this, that not all of the seed that you plant is always productive. Sometimes it just doesn't. For various reasons, we're going to get into some of those. The people understood the hard ground. They understood the rocky ground and the weedy ground and the good ground. They knew what Jesus was talking about here. So in that sense, it was a very simple story about very familiar things. However, the last statement of Jesus would have been the wow factor here. You see, seed doesn't produce like that. It doesn't produce a hundred times what it is. Okay, it doesn't produce like that. So this this part of the message is, is a little different. It's the wow factor. No planting ever has that kind of return. So it's not ordinary. It was uncommon. On one hand... The sower looks like he is very unsuccessful in the first three soils. And then on the other hand, we see, wow, 30, 60, 100-fold return. So this seems simple enough. It's a story about soils, dirt, mud, and their difference. Simply, some are non-reproductive. Some are very productive. It's simple enough. So what is he talking about? What's the point? You see, this parable is designed to help us understand evangelism. Y'all get me? Evangelism. What is evangelism? What are we doing with this? 
That's what it's designed to do. It's included in Matthew 13. It's included in Luke chapter 8. It's here. It's given in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it's important for us to understand, and it needs to be repeated three times. Now, we all know that the church exists in the world for the purpose of what? Evangelism. We're here to fulfill the Great Commission. To go into the world, what? Preach the gospel. Reach all nations, correct? It's not the great suggestion. It's the great commission or command. We have been called to this mandate. That is the chief goal of the church in the world. All the other goals are intermediate goals. Becoming holy, being obedient, worshiping the Lord, all these things. Coming to spiritual maturity are to make us into the kind of Christians who have an effective witness. Why? Because our lives are now a testimony. But the ultimate end for which we live in the world is the proclamation of the gospel. So this is right at the heart of where we are supposed to be and what we are supposed to do. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Simple enough. That's what the church does. That's the church's purpose. Our call is not into politics or morality. It is to proclaim the gospel. So this is very a very important parable for us to learn. Not only in what it says, but it's going to teach us the response of others. How many of us have tried to spread the gospel or you try to witness to someone and man, it's just rejection and rejection, it's confusion and, and they don't want no part of it. Oh, I think all of us in here probably. That's a normal thing. We are left here in this world Every generation of Christians, one after the other, after the other, until the Lord comes with this responsibility to proclaim the gospel of Christ. What is the gospel? Summed up in one word, Christ. Christ, that's it. It's, it's pretty simple. For many Christians, the effort seems disappointing, daunting, discouraging. We even get to the point where we give up. Maybe that's because we don't really understand what is being said here in this parable that Jesus himself is talking about. There are efforts to fix this dilemma that evangelicals are in. We give out the gospel and it's rejected or it's received superficially or temporarily. So what's the problem? What is that kind of response? You see, contemporary evangelicalism would say this, it's our fault. The fault is with us. We are out of touch with the culture. We are out of touch with the style. We are out of touch with the psychology of people. We are out of touch with the psychology of sales or the, the psychology of overcoming consumer resistance. We are out of touch with connecting with people. That's what the sower thinks. You see, that appeals to people on the level of their self-desires their felt needs, their personal longings. We need a more acceptable message, and we need to be more cultural savvy. You see, that's the message of so much of the American church right now. we got to fix. See, the problem isn't the sower, and the problem isn't the seed. In other words, in the language of the parable, the problem is with like what they're saying, and they think we got to fix ourselves. we got to look a certain way. we got to act a certain way. We've got to kind of meld our church into the culture and the society so we look like them, so we can attract them into the house of God and get them saved. That's wrong. We're set apart. We're not the same. The Bible's offensive. The gospel's offensive. 
It's supposed to divide. The truth divides. That's what it does. Think, man, I maybe need a new wardrobe, look a certain way. That'll fix it. Or maybe we paint the church up to look a certain way. Or maybe we style the music a certain way. Or, or maybe we do this, we do that. We, we use all this means of attraction. We wonder why we use carnal means to get people. And we wonder why they're carnal. It's easy to fill a church. You fill somebody's bellies and their wallets, they'll come. That's not hard. But it's also superficial. We have misguided efforts in this direction. And they're everywhere. We try to fix the sower, and then we try to fix the seed. I'm going to tell you this. That's a waste of time. The seed is perfect. The seed is the absolute, infallible, uncorruptible Word of God. That's it. We don't have to add to it. We don't take away from it. We just speak it. It's that simple. Jesus is telling us here, the issue is not the sower, and it's not the seed. It's the soil. The issue here is the soil. It's the heart. That's the issue. We are so bent on the style of the sower and creating some kind of synthetic acceptable seed. Heck, we even have you know, we have Gucci seed bags now. You know, we want to make it look good. We've got to dress up the gospel and make it look attractive to people. So we don't offend them or make them feel bad about themselves. That, my friends, is wrong because they need to recognize they're sinful. We need to recognize we are sinful. The first three kinds of soil, this is, again, this is nothing new. They saw the record ground in the Pharisees. They saw the superficial ground and a lot of the other folks. So some disciples who followed for a little while, they, they left, they went away. They saw that. So the Lord is talking to His specific disciples, and He wants them to see in the story is the 60 and the 30 and the 100 fold. You, can't, you may not be able to see that now, but you will. And in fact, you see, you see it continue in Mark chapter 4, verse 26 to 29, where it talks about if you sow, you go to bed after you sow. That sounds a lot simpler than me stressing over. I, I plant it in the ground, I take a nap. That's pretty easy to do. I, that sounds great right now. Maybe after a sandwich, but I can take a nap. Plant it, let God cultivate it. Let God move it. That's when the crop comes up because there are powers beyond you and me that produce it. It's going to grow, but I'm not making it grow. I put it in the ground, God takes care of the rest. So this parable is meant, actually, I know I'm going to come down on you a little bit, but this parable is meant to encourage you. It's meant to explain to you the resistance and the rejection that you're going to face in evangelism. But it also encourages with great unexplainable results, which is remarkable. Verse 14. Go with me real quick. Mark chapter 4. We're still there. The sower sows the word. Right now we, are, we know what the seed is. It's the word. Simple. Straight to the point. Now, first of all, let's look at the sower. What does it say about the sower? Absolutely nothing. It doesn't say what kind of clothes he should wear, what kind of education they should have. It doesn't say what job they should be employed at. No, no. It doesn't say anything. It doesn't say what, what, what you should be doing. It's just anybody, any one of us who sows. 
anybody faithful to proclaim the word of God is a sower. You, me, all of us. Simple. So what is it? What is the issue then? The seed? The seed is the word of God. Luke 8, 11 says, and this is the same passage, the spirit of God, it is the word from God, the saving gospel, the word of the kingdom, if you will, the gospel of the kingdom, the message of God has sent. That's not the problem, right? First Peter talks about it as well. We also see it in Romans. Faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing the what? Word. You got it. Everything. In First Peter, everything pertaining to life and godliness has been granted to us through the knowledge of Him. A true knowledge of Him is revealed in what? Scripture. The sower is anybody who sows. The seed is the Word of God. I don't need to beg the issue anymore. I'm going to skip a little bit. Paul says in Romans, We're not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. Any sower who sows the Word therefore wields the power. And if you follow through the book of Acts, you come, in, you come into chapter 4, verse 31. What, they, what do they do? They proclaim the Word of God. Verse Chapter 6, verse 7, they proclaim the Word of God. Chapter 8, verse 14, proclaim the Word of God. It goes on and on and on through the evolution of the church. So the issue of the story here is not the sower. It's not the seed. So it's the other variables, the soil. Talking about dirt. Look at somebody say, we're talking about dirt. Now don't pat yourself on the back. It's not you. It's the heart. If you think you can do something about the heart, guess again, because you can't. You say, I can throw seed, but only God can do the plowing. God can plow the soil. Only God, by the Holy Spirit, can plow the heart. That's a fun foundational truth to understand. No man comes to me unless the Father draws him. And by the way, in, in that same chapter, John chapter 6, Jesus says it twice. In two different ways. He goes on later in, in, in verse 65, he says, For this reason I've said to you, no one can come to me unless it's been granted him from the Father. Twice in the same chapter. So he has to do it. So the only way that they're going to be, there's, there's going to be good soil if it's divinely prepared by God. Y'all get me? doesn't take human ingenuity. You ain't got to manufacture some methodology to attract somebody. You share the word, and if it's the right art, it's going to get it. You're going to get it. Let's look at this, the soil here, the first one. We'll call it the roadside soil in verse 15. Let's go there. It says, these are the ones along the path where the word is sown, and when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. Right away. These are the ones who right right by the road. It's hard, rocky, useless. In other words, the seed's planted and it's just bouncing right off. I mean, can't penetrate anything. Solid. They're just hard-hearted. And in this case, Satan is the birds, depicted in the birds back in verse 4. They come along and they see the seed and they snatch it away. It doesn't even get a chance to penetrate. It makes no impact. It's a hard, beaten path. Nothing gets through. Nothing is absorbed. You can preach the gospel again and again and again and again. Give the gospel over and over. But you constantly reject it. They go long past the place to receive it. 
Now, now, church, that's that's so much of the world. They don't want to hear it. They refuse it. Absolutely refuse it. So many. This is a powerful analogy here. You see, at the time, especially the fields weren't fenced, and neither is the heart. It's an unprotected heart. It's it lies exposed. It's unprotected. It it lies open for the all the evil that comes around to stomp on it. It's never broken up by the softening of conviction. Conviction, by the way, you know we we hear that word and we kind of cower at it a little bit. But conviction is a great thing. It really is. It's like if you hurt yourself, you know, you cut yourself. It sends a message to your brain. Ow, you know, this hurts a lot. Something's wrong with the body. Something's wrong with me. Okay, that is giving you a message, get this fixed or a bigger problem is going to happen. You see, when the Holy Spirit convicts you, it's saying, hey, get this fixed. There's a problem with your body, with your spiritual mind. There's a problem. Take care of it. There's nothing wrong with that. It's the Holy Spirit warning you. Now, we've all seen people like this. They have this callous heart. It's unpenetrable. We know people like that. I know a number of people like that. Some even come to mind. They're like the people of Acts in, in chapter 17. It says they sneered at the resurrection. They're out there. You're going to see them. It's a reality. Even more importantly, look at your own heart. Is that us? Is that me? Have you heard the message of the gospel again and again? You've sat in church maybe your whole life and you've heard about Jesus. You've heard it, but nothing's quite gotten in there. What is it? That's a scary place to be. That's a frightening place to be. Church, I don't want to be there. I don't want my heart to be there. The second soil is the stony soil. Let's go to verse 16. It says, These are the ones sown on rocky ground, and when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. Verse 17, But they have no root in themselves, and they are short-lived. When affliction or persecution comes, because of the word, they immediately stumble or fall away. And the point of it, I'm going to talk about the word joy, okay? Now, we already know these people who have this superficial dirt on top. And what this is talking about, you got a rock and a bunch of dirt's kind of on top, and just enough for the plant to take root, but it can't penetrate. You ever seen that? You ever seen that? It just can't go down, all right? So we're going to talk about joy. We know people. The seed goes down. It can grow a little bit. Everything pushes up because the roots can't go down. So you have this artificial idea that, oh, this is wonderful. Look, it's growing. It's growing everywhere. But because the roots can't get past the rock, they can't get to the water. And then when the sun comes out, it burns the plant before it produces anything. That's this kind of person. This is the person depicted as one who receives the word with joy in my, my definition, that defines an emotional response to the call of God. Let me build on that for a moment. An emotional response with joy. And we all look at that and say, oh, you know, I talked to so-and-so and gave them the gospel, and I don't understand where they've been. You ever look around, even, even our church, you know, people gave their hearts to God at the altar, and, oh, man, they cried and they raised their hands. Where are they at now? What What happened? I'll tell you what happened. Let me give you this simple principle. Joy is not the distinguishing factor of true conversion. Joy is an emotion. It is not the distinguishing factor of true conversion. In fact, 
more, a more likely distinguishing factor of true conversion would be brokenness over your sin. You know, the beatitude, it says, blessed are those who mourn. But, you know, we look at that and we think that's weird. But what it's saying is blessed are those who mourn the sin in their life. That's what you mourn. Blessed are the broken, the humble. That's what it's talking about. We look around and they're not here anymore. They don't come to church. They don't confess the Lord. And they were so happy when it happened. They were so excited. What does James tell us in James chapter 4, verse 6? It says, we mourn. That's what conviction produces. Blessed are those who mourn, Matthew chapter 5. Don't ever assume that because somebody is demonstrating joy after having prayed a prayer or whatever, don't assume that they know Christ. Joy comes, I'm not saying it don't, joy comes in the wonderful relief and release of true conversion. Let me tell you something, never make the gospel appeal to people's emotions, ever. Don't believe me? I've played music my whole life. I know which chords to play on a piano to get you to respond. That's why some of you respond really well to a 4-4 shout beat. Some of you don't. Some of you respond really well to other styles of music. Why? Because it's triggering an emotion. I know I'm cutting deep here. I get it. So you have to be careful. Don't appeal to the emotions. Listen, emotions are fine. It's a byproduct. I'm emotional because I'm saved. I'm emotional because what God has done for me. But I don't appeal to that. Never appeal to people with any kind of gospel that is directed at their emotions. Because it's easy to manipulate their emotions. And frankly, most people have issues in their lives that make them sad. All of us do. If you work well enough, if you're clever enough, you can promise them happiness. And when they make some kind of superficial step, they'll have a momentary kind of relief. There'll be this newly stirred up feeling that they have. Oh, now God's on my side. Now I'm going to heaven. This is wonderful. You've accepted me. You've embraced me. But the problem is this. In verse 17, it may be short-lived when what? Affliction and persecution come. This world is full of people who would like to be happy. Agreed? I do. The world is full of people who want to be accepted, loved, and go to heaven. And if you appeal to that emotion, you're going to get an emotional response. But it's not always consistent with true conversion. Be careful. Be careful. Your approach to evangelism, my approach to evangelism should be this and simply this. Here's the truth. You drive it at the mind because all things pertaining to life and godliness, as I read to you a minute ago in Second Peter, pertain to the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. There's a second thing you never want to do. You never want to appeal directly to people's will because the world is full of weak-willed people, me included. Are you aware of that? You can manipulate people's will to do anything if you're clever enough and you create enough self-interest. You know what I'm saying? It's easy to do. Easy to do. 
if you're clever enough and if you create enough self-interest, you know, I know what's going to happen when I send in my money. I'm going to get rich. I know what's going to happen. I'm going to get healthy. I'm going to get successful. God's going to pour out all kinds of goodies on me. God does bless. Don't get me wrong. There are principles of giving. Don't get me wrong. But when it's based on self-interest, no. If you're going to proclaim the gospel, you have to go after the mind, and it has to be a true understanding of the gospel. The church of Jesus Christ is flooded with tares who came in emotionally from a weak-willed response, but they're not the real thing, and it shows up. The reason why it's temporary, because when affliction shows up, when persecution shows up, you begin to wonder, God, this, is what, this, is what, this isn't what I bargained for. This, is what, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. You told me I would get healed. You told me that Jesus would make me successful. And guess what? I've got cancer. My husband left. I'm out. Any kind of pressure will prove your salvation. That's why Peter says it's so important. The trials prove your faith. I don't like that word, trials, at all. I'm going to give you some advice. Don't ever pray for patience. Whew. He ain't going to just grant you patience. You know, you're going to have an opportunity to be patient. A false faith, when the trial comes, you can't cash in and you don't get what you were told you were going to get. And Jesus doesn't do what you thought he was going to do and then you're gone. Even worse, persecution comes and you're not going to take that. I'm not willing to take that. I'm not, I don't want to go through all that. That isn't what I thought was going to happen. You say, well, we, we live over here. Now, let me tell you something. In the past 200 years, more people have been martyred for the sake of Christ than the previous 1,800 years combined. You say, well, this ain't happening in our day. Yes, it is. Maybe not in the United States of America, but it is. So when the trouble comes, are you going to bail? Or when the persecution comes, are you going to say, well, I, I, didn't want to, I didn't bargain for this. You see, Jesus was talking to his disciples right in front of him in this parable. How do I know that? Because in John 6 it says many of his disciples walked no more with him. They didn't want this. They didn't want it. Why? They didn't want to suffer. He was just talking about the fact they're going to have to drink his blood and eat of his flesh and he was about to die and they're out of here. And then Peter says, to whom shall we go? I like sarcastically asking the question. You and you alone have the words of eternal life, and we know you are the Holy One of God, and we're hanging in there. It's because they were given the gift of real faith, and this is the disciples at the time. This is important for us to understand. It gets us to the third kind of soil, the thorny hearers. Verse 18 and 19, let's go there. Others are sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age, the seduction of wealth, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Unfruitful. The word thorns here is the Greek word akanthos, which means is the name of a thorny weed that you will find a lot around the Middle East. So it's an actual plant. Matthew 27, 29, it refers to the crown of thorns, placed on the Lord's head, it was made out of these actual same thorny weeds. Just to give you a little history lesson there. 
So this is what occupies the heart. It's not a response of shallow emotion. This is not the response of self-will driven by self-love and self-interest. This is the person who is double-minded. Now, I really, as, as Christians, as the church, we need to look at this. Because this is the people who are trying to live in the world and live for Christ at the same time. And the Bible says if you're lukewarm, he's going to what? Spit you out. Wants nothing to do with it. Vomit, in other words. You can't live for God and try to live for the world. And what do I mean by live for the world? When we, th- we think that, we hear that, we think like this is big majestic plan. No, no, no. Living for the world means simply living for self. My world, my desires, my ambitions, all of this other stuff is encompassed in that word world. That's what it's talking about. It's double-minded person whose repentance is not complete. This is the person who wants salvation, wants Christ, wants the kingdom, but also wants the world and its riches and all of its stuff. I've been there a lot in my life. This is the rich young ruler. Remember him, Matthew 19? This is the heart that is the enemy of God. James chapter 4, verse 4. Because it loves the world, this is the kind of heart that says, as Jesus points out in Luke chapter 9, yeah, I'm going to follow you, Lord. I'm going to follow you, but I can't follow you now, you know. I got to go bury my father. Anybody remember that story? You know, that sounds like a reasonable request. God, let me go bury my dad. You know, when we look at that on the surface, we think, well, that that sounds harsh. Why Why not just let him do that? Because the guy wasn't dead yet. He was waiting on his dad to die so he would get his inheritance so he would be wealthy enough. Then, now he's comfortable. Then I'll go into the ministry and help follow God. Let me get all my ducks in a row and then I'll come to Christ. That's what was happening. Jesus says what? Let the dead bury the dead. That sounds mean. No, 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 no. What the man was wanting was his comfort and he wanted his cake and he wanted to eat it too. That's all that was. There are those who are under the terrible temptation of the love of money becoming the root of all kinds of evil. 1 Timothy chapter 6. These are the people consumed with the stuff of the world. Now let me tell you something. It's very important. The gospel calls for a break from the worries of the world or the distractions of the age. What do I mean by the worries of the world? Stop! If you are a child of God, stop worrying about where you're going to eat, where you're going to lay your head, what you've got to wear. That is no longer your concern. He will take care of you. I find myself, anybody that's a parent, anybody that's a grandparent, a mom or a dad, there's just things we stress about, right? I do. And I'm heavily convicted for it. Even the flowers don't have to worry. The birds don't have to worry. It's not a, is it not amazing to you that we see all of these promises? We even see it in church circles. They promise, they, they want to promise the health and the wealth, and they want to promise all this stuff and Jesus. That's that's a contradiction. Let me tell you something about the gospel. And don't Stone me after this. The gospel does not promise you what your unconverted, corrupted, fallen, wretched, sinful heart already wants. That's not what the gospel offers. The gospel doesn't say it'll give you the world. It'll give you riches. It may require you to take a cross. It may. 
It doesn't promise you that everything's always all right. But let me tell you something. When you go through the trial and you come out on the other side, because he did say he will go through you, through it with you. He will get you through the other side. And when you come out of the trial, your testimony is that much more. And then our evangelism is that much more because we have been tested through the trial. When you come to Christ, you have to let go of the world and the love of riches and all the other things the world has to offer. Take up your cross. What is the distinguishing mark of true conversion? Jonathan Edwards said it is this, humble, broken-hearted love for God. Salvation is regeneration. It is a real transformation, turning a person from loving self to loving God, from pride to humility, from the reigning power of sin to the reigning power of righteousness. That's conversion. That's the bottom line. A holy life is the chief sign of grace. You want to know if you're saved or not? Are you holy? Are you pursuing holiness? Are you pursuing righteousness in your life? Is it evident? Is there fruit being produced out of that soil? It's a holy love out of a holy life directed at the Holy One. That's how you see the redeemed. That's how you know if you're saved. Just to help you a little bit more with this, in the garden Satan comes to Eve and what is the temptation? God said, don't eat. Of the fruit. What does the devil do? What's the temptation? The actual temptation. It isn't just disobedience. No, 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 no. He says, if I'm telling you, you can eat it. And if you eat it, you will be as God. That's it. You will be like God. And what will happen when you're like God? You will know good or evil. Not just in terms of information, but you will also be able to choose. You'll become the sovereign of your own life. You can get out from under this leadership that you're submitting yourself to in the garden to God. And you can take over. That was his lie. That's what he did. And you can determine for yourself good and evil. You can choose to do good. You can choose to do evil. You will be the master of your own life. That is the lie in the garden. That was Satan's temptation. That's what he did. Man's only hope is to humble himself because God gives grace to the humble. And so God is looking for those with a broken, contrite heart who tremble at his authority. There are people who do respond that way. And there are also those who respond the right way. The right way. You know, the first part of that is, man, it's rough. But you see, the miracle comes now. This is amazing. Well, I can't seem to reach all everybody that I talk to. That's okay. That's all right. Go to verse 20. It says, But the ones sown, again, the seeds, on good ground are those who, what? Hear the word, welcome it, and produce a crop. 30, 60, and 100 times what they've sown. Those are the ones... When the seed is sown on good ground, they hear the word, they accept it. They're willing to humble themselves. They're willing to be broken. They desire heaven, yes. They desire salvation, yes. They desire forgiveness, yes. But underlying all of that is the desire to be delivered from the dominating power of sin. And they want a life of righteousness. That's good soil. That's good soil. You can see that in your own life. You see, the, the thing is, though, that's not a natural thing. 
good soil is not natural. Hard soil is natural. Yeah, we have a sin nature. That's natural. That's why those things that pull you certain ways. We blame the devil a lot for a lot of things, but we really, we really have this fleshly desire to sin. We can't escape that. Even as Christians, we fail. We still sin. Paul gives us this analogy in my, my Wednesday class. I've, I've stressed this many times. Paul gives the analogy of being strapped to a rotting corpse. What would happen is if you were a murderer in that day, they would wrap you, strap you to the murdered body, and as it decayed, it would decay onto you, and you would die from all the corruption from the death. That sounds disgusting, right? Horrible. But that's the analogy Paul uses. When you become a Christian, we're still tied to this flesh, this rotting corpse that's destined to die. It's a grotesque analogy, but it's the absolute truth. We're still tied to this flesh. And when we say die, die daily, when the Bible says to die daily, it means to die to your flesh. When your flesh says you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this, we die to that desire. It's not natural. Good soil is not natural. It needs to be plowed, and only one can do the plowing, and that's God. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6 says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. Nobody can do it on his own. Nobody. James says, Purify your hearts, you sinners. How do you do that? You can't do that on your own. You go to God and you ask God to do it. When you're talking about true conversion, and again, I hope you're, hope you're looking at yourself, not just from evangelism, but when you're talking about a true conversion, it's not someone who just wants an emotional fix in their life or wants direction or wants what their corrupted flesh wants. You're talking about someone who wants to be rescued from the power and the penalty of what? Sin. That's salvation. We don't preach ourselves, but we preach Christ. We preach Him crucified. This is the best part of the story. It's the last line. The results are phenomenal. Hard, hard to understand. The point here is simply this, that while the results immediately on the surface look pretty bad and pretty bleak, when we launch, as we launch into evangelism, the disciples are literally saying this to Jesus at that moment. Lord, everybody's leaving. We're here, at, we're, they're leaving you. Even one left Jesus. Why are so, that disciples ask, why are so few believing? They see this mass of people who, re, who have rejected, the, and, and they eventually turn away. Like the rich young ruler. Well, here's a great lesson of this parable. The results are going to be supernatural. And there is, in spite of rejection, irrepressible empowerment in these lives, they can't see it. The disciples are timid, they're hard-hearted, ignorant, selfish. Even they themselves are a work in progress. Now, this is not trying to convey that 30 or 60 or 100 is better. That's not the point of this. God's going to use us in different ways. Different ways. But if you go, and I'm going to finish here. If you go to John 15, verse 1, he says, I am the vine. I am the vine. And if you're a part of that vine, what does he do? 
prunes you. That's painful a little bit. But if you're not part of the line, what happens? You will be burnt up. What is burnt? Hell. It's real. If you're not part of the vine who is Christ, if you are not saved in Christ, you're burnt. So if you're a superficial Christian, if you have a superficial connection to Jesus, you get taken away. He takes every branch that bears fruit and he prunes it so that it may what? Bear more fruit. And finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, he says, By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, not my doing, his doing. Who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Here we are in the world, this collection of nobodies who of all people in the world alone have the wisdom of God. You and I have the wisdom of God through His Word, through His righteousness, and in our sanctification and redemption. But it's all the work of God. It's by His doing. It is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We can't take credit for it. And this part here, and I'm done. It's going to start small. Even the disciples couldn't figure it out. But you notice on the day of Pentecost, 3,000. Just a few short days after the day of Pentecost, another 4,000. Shortly after that, it it blossomed to 20,000. And then over the last two millennia, we have seen millions and millions and millions of people come to Christ. That is the 30, the 60, the 100 You just sow the seed, my friend, and take a nap. It's that simple. I just sow the word. I don't add to it. I don't take away from it. I just tell it. It doesn't require any effort on your part to change the seed. You don't have to change who you are as the sower. You just live a life of holiness in Christ and share the gospel of Jesus Christ and let God do the rest. You see, we've got it backwards. We want to bring people into the church. Hey, instead of inviting them to know Christ, we invite them into the church, and we kind of let the church do its thing. I hate to tell you, that's not the responsibility of it. The responsibility lies with the sheep, not the shepherd. Shepherd don't give birth to sheep. Y'all understanding me? That's how the gospel is shared. Yes, we can get saved in the house of God. That's wonderful. We can, get, we can come to the altar and give ourselves to Christ, but we need to know, we need to understand, is it the true, is it the true conversion in my life? Does my life reflect Him? Do I no longer desire sin in my life? That's how you know. You ever want to ask the question, how do I know? That's how you know. Pretty simple.